Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this past week a sad news story came out of Fredericton, New Brunswick. Uh, every year there, a particular care home for seniors sets up a Christmas light display as a fundraiser for the home. Now, a few days after setting up the display this year, the lights suddenly went out. Thieves had come and they stole an expensive copper cable powering the display causing over $3,000 in damage. When you hear stories like that, it's hard not to get angry. Who steals from a bunch of helpless seniors and their care home? Instead of taking money from them, we should be giving money to improve their lives. Makes you angry. Well, we are not the only ones who get angry at these acts of theft. The Lord hates it too. These thieves have things all wrong in their hearts and in their minds and in their lives. It's a serious problem of putting money before people and before God. Sordering of the relationship between God, people, and money can easily happen in our hearts too. And when that happens, all manner of theft and sins related to the Eighth Commandment can take place. One reason God gave us His law, including the Eighth Commandment, is so that we can see our sin. As Paul says in Romans 7, I would not have known sin unless it were for the law. This includes not only uh, acts of sin, but also sinful desires and sinful thoughts. And convicting, convicting us of sin, God also points us to Christ for forgiveness, for salvation, and for renewal. So that brings us to the sermon theme this morning, which is as follows. In the Eighth Commandment, the Lord teaches us the right relationship between money, God, and our neighbor. We're going to look at, first of all, the sinful desires that drive disobedience. Uh, Secondly, the righteous response of God to sin. And thirdly, the perspective of faith that powers obedience. So first of all, the sinful desires that drive disobedience. So as we study the Eighth Commandment, or any commandment for that matter, it's good to get at the root of sins committed against this commandment. See, pretty much all of our actions in life stem from our desires. Desires consistently motivate choice and actions. And this is certainly true when it comes to acts of obedience or disobedience towards God. Actions such as stealing and cheating arise from what our hearts want and love most. We're going to explore this truth starting with our reading from James chapter 5. Now, in this text, the Holy Spirit through James sets his sights on the rich within the church. And with strong words, he proclaims a message of judgment. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Talk about a message of doom and gloom. Now, what is the problem with these rich people here in James 5? Is it that they have riches? Well, no, not necessarily. There are numerous rich people in Scripture who are commended as godly people. The problem is in how they got their riches. 
and how they used them, and how they viewed money. And it's clear from this reading that these people got their riches by cheating and defrauding their neighbor. Yes, hard work and business savvy were most likely in the picture too, but listen to the charges laid against them in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So these rich uh, people were landowners. They hired workers to work their fields. And this was often difficult, backbreaking work. And these sorts of laborers relied on their everyday wages to survive. But at the end of the day, these rich landowners defrauded their workers. They intentionally withheld their pay. This is something God's Old Testament law expressly warned against. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, God put it like this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And the Apostle James may have had this very text in mind as he wrote this section from James chapter 5. And the conduct of these rich people apparently got worse. They're not only guilty of getting rich through cheating, but they also appear to take the very life of their neighbor. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, says verse 6. He does not resist you. With those words, it's hard not to think of someone like Ahab and Jezebel who killed Naboth to take his vineyard for themselves. In some ways, we don't know exactly how these rich people were doing similar things. Now, I hope you can see that the actions of these people here in James 5 are seriously wrong. But there's a danger that comes with that. The danger is that we simply check off the box and say, well... That's not me. I haven't done that. Now, in some ways, that might be true. If you aren't withholding the wages of your workers, that's great. Keep that up. If you aren't murdering your neighbor to take his stuff, that's good too. Never do that. But there's also more here. Why at bottom did these people do these sinful actions? Well, you can be absolutely sure of one thing. In the hearts of these rich people described in James 5, money is more important than God to them. Money is more important to them than God. The Lord Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount that you cannot serve two masters. And maybe these people thought they were serving the Lord. It appears they were in the church. After all, it seems that James assumed that they would hear uh, this letter as it was read within the churches. But their actions show they were really serving money. Money had taken the place of God. Money has become more important to them than God. And when we do that with money... 
put it in the place of God, more sin will undoubtedly follow. Might not be the very sins that these people were committing, but other sin will certainly follow. You see, sins against the great and first commandment, like the summary of the law says, the complete love of God, will undoubtedly lead to sins against the second commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And these rich people in their text have definitely placed money before people, before their neighbor. And that's where we need to be on guard. When money or your financial goals or your own prosperity or your own comfort or your desire for more possessions or your desire for financial security are more important to you than your neighbor, you will sin against your neighbor for the sake of those things. And that's what we should see here. It's not about just about committing the same sins of these rich people here in James 5. It's about having the same misplaced desires they had. And these desires can arise in any of us, whether you're rich or poor, powerful or weak, doesn't matter. So, let me ask you, on the scale of things you love and find to be most important, where do you, where do you rank God, people, and money? What has the primary place? And what has the secondary place? And how do your actions show what really comes first? You see, if the relationship between those things is disordered, when it's not as it should be, sins against the Eighth Commandment are sure to follow. This can include not only outright theft and robbery, can include things like greed, and James 5 speaks out against that too. You've laid up treasures in the last days. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Right? They've used money completely for self. Their whole focus is on self. And problems of sin will always arise when our hearts are centered on self. When we have a self-focus, money will become all about us. And there's a danger that we make our aim in life only to get more. That's our goal, our aim, just to gain more money, more possessions, more this, more that, all for me. And this then becomes the goal of all of work, all of our financial plans, all of life. There's a danger that we become so goal-driven so profit-driven, so money-driven that we run roughshod over people and end up stealing from them. But with this perspective, God and neighbor are pushed out of view. That brings us to our second point. Now, the Bible is a big book. Much of it was written before the time Christ lived on earth. And when you read the Old Testament such as the Old Testament prophets, there's a danger that we relegate it to a bygone era that is not relevant to our lives as New Testament Christians. There's just one example. I'm going to read from Isaiah 13, verse 6. This is 
God's word to Israel in the time of Isaiah, where he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Right? When we read that, it can be easy to dismiss this message as outdated and out of place for us now. But as we can see from James 5, that same spirit of prophecy carries into the New Testament era. And that's because we serve the same God who does not change. And the sins that brought about a righteous response from God back then also bring about a righteous response from Him today. And so in the same spirit as Old Testament prophecy, God shows His righteous response in James 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Sounds like the Old Testament prophets, doesn't it? Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Why does the Lord react in this way? Well, God always hated when people oppressed the poor, when they took advantage of the weak and the powerless. And it's no wonder, given what he said back in James 1, religion that's pure and undefiled before God is to look after orphans and and widows and their distress. That's what God wants. Care for the weak and the helpless. And when people exploit the weak and powerless for their own gain, it arouses God's fury. So Scripture is filled with its judgments against people who trampled on the poor took advantage of the weak, and preyed upon the lowly. That's why James 5 tells us that these sins don't go unnoticed by the Lord. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And this again fits the Old Testament pattern. Genesis 18 says the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, against their wickedness, it reached God's ears. In response, he came in righteous judgment against those cities. In Exodus 2, the cries of the Israelites groaning in slavery went up to God, and he heard them. In response, the Lord, Yahweh, punished Egypt for their wickedness. In Jonah 1, the wickedness of Nineveh, it says, came up before the Lord. In response, God sent Jonah to proclaim a message of judgment. Notice how James 5 says that these cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That too is a largely Old Testament name used for God. It literally means the Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, or the heavenly armies. See, God with his heavenly hosts, he avenges sin. He will fight for those who cannot defend themselves. The poor who are trampled on and the oppressed. 
that should make us all sit back and take stock of our own hearts and our own actions. Take care when it comes to these things. It is not a sin to have money and to also be rich. But we had better make sure our money doesn't come through oppression, cheating, stealing, or taking advantage of our neighbor. See, it always destroys life when these sins are committed. It hurts others to steal from them. When people shoplift from a store, it hurts the store owner. His cries will reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. When people practice insurance fraud, it hurts not only the insurance company, but also everyone else who need to pay higher premiums. God notices the hurt done to them. When people cheat on their taxes or falsely claim benefits like CERB, it hurts the other citizens of the country. God sees all such injustices. And while James 5 focuses on rich landowners oppressing their workers, we can also turn the tables on that one. When people cheat their boss out of an honest day's work, it hurts their boss. God does not ignore that form of stealing either. You know what? We could apply these things in many ways. And in many ways, the problem described in James 5 has become a, a bit of a global problem. Well, maybe do we, I should ask, do we care about, say, sweatshops in different parts of the world where people, sometimes children, slave away for little pay to produce goods that we buy and use? Now, as I say that, I understand that we are limited in what we can do. We can't fix all the world's problems. Neither am I suggesting we actively boycott certain companies. But do we have concern for them? If God hears the cries of the oppressed, so should we. If God works to help the powerless, so should we. And in our third point, we're going to look at how these actions can grow in our lives more and more. So that brings us to the third point. So James 5 targets the rich people who gain their wealth through oppression and greed. We have rich landowners defrauding their poor workers for their own gain. And there are plenty of Old Testament examples where God thundered against uh, such sins. In one sense, I could have made this sermon one long list of quotations from the Old Testament prophets. So sadly, the problem described in James 5, it's nothing new and it hasn't gone away either. But in the Old Testament, we also see someone who provides a stunning contrast to the people of James 5. Here I'm thinking of Boaz, who featured in our reading from Ruth 2. And young men, if you're looking for a biblical role model to follow, I would say Boaz is a great place to start. A true picture of biblical manhood. And this example of Boaz also helps to uncover what ultimately drives obedience in matters of the Eighth Commandment. And that's especially what we want to see, because the message here is not simply, be like Boaz. But just as we study the ungodliness of the rich oppressors in James 5 to see the root cause of sin, so we can study Boaz from Ruth 2 to see what powers and drives obedience also in matters of the Eighth Commandment. 
Look at how God has worked in his life and how it contrasts with the people of James 5. Yes, Boaz is a rich landowner. He was a man of means. There's no getting around that. And yes, he has workers working for him. But you can be sure that Boaz was not cheating his workers out of their pay. He treats them fairly. And you can tell in this chapter that they respect him. They follow his orders, and his orders are for good. They know that Ruth can glean among the sheaves as God instructed in his law. Boaz was following God's law, and even more so, going out of his way to supply the sojourner and the poor they could glean in his field. And it's certain from this chapter, too, that Ruth is safe in his field, safe from, um, against being assaulted, not like in some of the other fields. He would never take advantage of a foreign woman who otherwise has no protection. He ensures her safety, does not oppress her, but protects her. This is what God desired in his law. Care for our neighbor. Boaz is hardworking. He does, as we see in Lord's Day 42, promotes his neighbor's good wherever he can, wherever he may, deals with him or her as he would like others to deal with him, and he works faithfully so that he can be able to give to those in need. He's also not greedy. The temptation would be there to be greedy because shortly before this, Israel went through a famine. Maybe he would would think to himself, I don't want to share my food. Times of scarcity might return. But here he generously supplies Ruth with all that she needs and more. And he's not just giving handouts. Ruth has to work hard for her food. That's how God wanted it too. But he's still generous in how he treats her. So you can tell from this chapter that uh, money is not Boaz's God. And he uses his power and authority, not selfishly, to take advantage of others, but for good. And so we can see in him that God's law has been written on his heart by the power of the Spirit. Again, so this is not simply to heap praise on Boaz. It's neither simply a message to say, go home and do this too, but encourage you to do likewise. But what we want to see this morning is, what is it that drove Boaz? What made him so different than these rich landowners of James 5? Well, first of all, this is the work of God's Spirit in his heart. The Holy Spirit has given him the perspective of faith. You can see that he wears his faith on his sleeve He greets his workers in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be with you. And when he speaks with Ruth, he points her to the Lord as the source of hope and life. It's not all about himself. He shows her where salvation comes. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The Lord is that safe place. He's that uh, place where we find salvation, that person in whom we find salvation. Boaz points Ruth to the Lord. 
and Boaz displays steadfast love to Ruth. And it's because he himself knows the steadfast love of the Lord. Of course, Boaz is not a perfect man. A scripture says, no one living is righteous before God of himself. That includes Boaz. He too needed his sins to be paid for just like you and me. But again, Boaz knew where salvation was found in the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's where we need to look too. No, perhaps this morning you feel the pinch of God's word and God's laws that convicts you of your own sins. Maybe sins of stealing, maybe sins of cheating your neighbor or fraud, maybe sins of greed and covetousness, or simply making God the most important or money the most important thing in your life. But God's law isn't meant only to convict us of our sin, but to point us to our Lord Jesus. And we look to God's steadfast love in Jesus Christ to pay for all of our sins. And He did that. Also, our sins against the Eighth Commandment. The words of Psalm 69 verse 4 are fulfilled in Jesus Christ where it says, What I did not steal... I then have to restore. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. What's it getting at? Well, it's like if you were in a store and some stranger shoplifts from a store while you're there, would the police come and make you pay for it? Well, that wouldn't be right, would it? Well, the truth is, this is what Christ did for us for our sins against the Eighth Commandment. And He didn't do it grudgingly. He did it in love. Love for God and love for you. Christ did restore what He did not steal. Remember how I spoke about how stealing hurts? It's because stealing and cheating and defrauding destroys life. That's why the wages of sin is death. Christ restored us paying the price for our sins, sins of greed, sins of stealing, sins of uh, cheating. And so Christ restored what he did not steal. He did it for our salvation. And it's this saving work of Christ that changes your perspective on life. See, God not only works to avenge sin on the earth, But he also works to bring salvation to broken people, sinful people, who put their trust in him. That's the perspective of faith that also drove Boaz. He went so far as to redeem Ruth. He was a kinsman redeemer. And it could have come at great cost to him. After all, there was another kinsman redeemer, as we read in Ruth chapter 3 who was closer to Ruth and Boaz. But this other redeemer did not want to endanger his own estate, and so he didn't do it. He was too worried about losing his worldly possessions to perform this act of love. But Boaz took the perspective of faith, 
Through this act of faith towards Ruth, God raised up the ultimate Redeemer, our Lord Jesus. See, God is working not only to avenge sin on earth, but also to bring salvation to broken, sinful people who put their trust in Him. And that ultimate Redeemer is the one who redeems us from eternal death, who redeems us from slavery to sin, the one who gives us eternal possessions and eternal pleasures at God's right hand. It's in Christ that we're driven to serve the Lord alone and, and put God before money and possessions and everything and to serve our neighbor in love. It's in Christ that we can use money and possessions for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing hymn 11, the stanzas 7, 8, and 9.